there. Welcome to episode 112 of the See Here podcast. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. My name is Morris Bishtinsky. I'm here in Melbourne. And over in Cape Cod, as she always is, is my wonderful co-host and great friend, Kerry Fristo. Hello. And we don't have Tim. What happened? That's a little <laughs> mighty wind joke there. Uh, but we do have someone special. I don't think I've ever had a mother and daughter combination on the show before. We've had a son and father combination, but not a mother and daughter. So welcoming Sarah Fristo to the show. Hello, how's it going? All the better for having you on the program, Sarah. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Now, we're going to be talking today about the film A Mighty Wind. We're going to go to a break, play the trailer of A Mighty Wind, uh, and then we'll come back and we'll have a discussion about all sorts of things like 60s folk music and nasty versus nice and all that sort of thing. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 112. Finally, in the news tonight, the music world mourns the death of folk music icon Irving Steinblum. Steinblum managed the careers of the Main Street singers, the Folksmen, and Mitch and Mickey. The only fitting tribute that, that we could come up with was a memorial concert. I'd like to think that Mitch would agree to do this, because I already said yes. Well, there's a puppy in the parlor. Folk Towns, the label to be on. But uh, they had no, uh, they had no hole in the center of the records. And uh, yeah, if you punched a hole in them, you'd have a good time. It's just that time. My dad, Fred Knox, was an original Main Street singer. He's a dead person now, but he, when he was alive, he was so happy. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature there's a kiss at the end of the rainbow mitch was mysterious and intense i don't remember much uh... we are so excited to be part of this project oh absolutely it's something of a challenge for me because i don't like folk music mm -hmm. me too quick plug ola i'm mike lafontaine owner and founder of high class management Whoops! <laughs> I had a hit that you might have heard of, Hurelegit Little Goman, which means How's It Hanging, Grandma? Those are lights hanging up there? Yes, those are lights. Could they fall? And that's a ceiling above us. Excuse me, I must be full. <laughs> it's perfect. like that wire. I see a wire. I see it. Ow! Mighty winds are blowing across the land and across the sea. It's blowing peace and freedom. I feel ready for a voyage on this magnificent vessel. I love Mitch. Uh, what if we see sailfish? But. If you start me up, if you start me up, I'll never stop. If you start me up, if you start me up, I'll never stop. I've been running hard, you got me chicken, gonna blow my top. If you start me up, if you start me up, I'll never stop. You make a grown man cry, you make a grown man cry, you make a grown man cry. And we're back, Morris over here, Kerry and Sarah over there. And this time around, we're talking about the 2003 film from Christopher Guest, A Mighty Wind. Now, the story is nominally by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy, but the dialogue, as we're going to find out, was improvised by the cast. They were given situations and they did all the improvising. I'm going to have to ask you some stuff about Second City because I'm sure you know a hell of a lot more than I do, but we'll come to that. So the film stars Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer as Spinal Tap. No, 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 sorry, as The Folksman. That's another film. Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara as Mitch and Mickey. Jane Lynch, John Michael Higgins, The Boners, <laughs> The Boners, uh, and, and the great Paul Dooley, who are members of an ensemble called The New Main Street Singers. There's others in that group but I can only announce so many actors and on the outside a peripheral to the musicians there's Bob Balaban and Fred Willard and Jennifer Coolidge so the summary, I had to go to Letterboxd because IMDb didn't have any sort of summary that was worth reading. Uh, in Letterboxd, it said, Director Christopher Guest reunites the team from Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman to tell the story of 60s-era folk musicians who, inspired by the death of their former manager, get back on stage for one concert in New York City's Town Hall. Now, the summary 
isn't wrong, but it doesn't tell a non-viewer anything. IMDb were even worse in that they made out that the film was only about one of the reassembled groups. So through this podcast, we hope to clear up the details for you. I'm sure a lot of you out there have seen this film. I found actually it's on YouTube, so you can watch it there, but I'm sure it's also on one of the other paid-for streaming services. I used my wonderful DVD. I had like a three-disc set of A Mighty Wind and Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. But anyway, look, before we get into the film in detail, I want to start off with our special guest, Sarah Fristo. Um, Hello. It's your first time here, so you're in the hot seat. I want to ask you this set of questions. What do you recall about your first time seeing the film? Have you watched this as Spinal Tap or any of the Christopher Guest films? And are you a fan of 60s era folk music? Answer that in any order that you wish. Short answer, yes. Uh, long answer, I don't remember like exactly where I was the first time I, I saw my new one, but I'm sure it was with my mom. <laughs> the first of many viewings. I just remember being taken aback by not only how funny it is, but how the music is actually really good. And it's like, it's hard to do both of those, you know? Because it could stay, like, we could just stand alone, listen to the soundtrack and be like, this is great. But with the accompaniment is, because even with Spinal Tap, you're not going to sit and listen to the Spinal Tap soundtrack as, as much. I mean, you could, but as much. But this one uh, is good. And yes, I have seen, I've seen Spinal Tap. I've seen Waiting for Guffman. I've seen Best in Show. I've seen, what was the other one? It was like, For Your Consideration. Yeah. yeah. The two that came after this, For Your Consideration and Mascots. I haven't seen either of those, but I imagine it's more of the same. Yeah. I was not, not as big a fan of For Your Consideration, but I haven't seen Mascots. But yeah, I, I love Christopher Guest. I like his... I guess, like, in a way, mumblecore ability to make awkwardness not sound forced. Their conversations and stuff like that, it really sounds like they're really, it's real. Like, they're really reuniting. They're really trying to go all through these things. It, it just sounds, it's real. And that's, you know, due in part to the, the cast themselves as well. I do like Christopher Guest. What was the other question? <laughs> I think you went through all of that. You've seen Spinal Tap. Oh, so what do you know about 60s era folk music? Have you listened to much? Are you a fan yeah, my liking of that is more the Laurel Canyon side of things, like the pop folk at the time. I like me some Joni Mitchell and uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and stuff like that. Less so sort of the Main Street singer-esque, like, you know, all dressing up. There's like 12 people in the band. They're like... It's just that kind of day. But you know, that's got its place as well. I, I do like me some 60s folk. Carrie, same questions to you. So the, I'm trying to think of the first time I saw Best in Show was my the first one I saw, even though Waiting for Guffman was first. I mean, I'd seen Spinal Tap before, I think. But the first one I saw of sort of the, this series, I would say, was uh, Best in Show, which I rented. It was my turn to choose. And I went to Blockbuster and I brought home Best in Show and my husband was like, oh God, this is going to be so terrible. And he laughed his head off. He loved it. So... <laughs> And well, we both did. We both did. And then so when A Mighty Wind came out, I was like, I have to see this right now. So I saw it like pretty much right when it came out. And I was not disappointed because as Sarah said, it is impressively musical. These actors are super talented to be able to, you know, they're doing these harmonies. And what is the name of the instrument that Catherine O'Hara plays? It's a zither, I think. Is that a yeah, I think so. Yes. Okay. Well, she learned that for the film. Hmm. I mean, she didn't know how to play that before. I mean, that's impressive because it looks very natural. But also, just they're in, they're playing, they're doing harmonies. Uh, John Michael Higgins, who's like the leader of the new Main Street Singers, did all the like choral arrangements. That's impressive, right there. You know the way they're saying like, are, are were you singing an eighth or a sixth? You know, I've been in acapella groups before, and I understand that language, you know, and stuff like that. 
it's just really impressive. Plus the fact that that so much of the, all of the actual dialogue is improvised. It's crazy. Anyway, so that's, I, I saw it right when it came out, loved it. I have seen all the other films that Christopher Guest has done. I do like some 60s folk. The one Sarah mentioned, you know, Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills and Nash, sort of folk rock, you know, I like those. But then I also like Peter, Paul and Mary. And, uh, you know, you got to love Puff the Magic Dragon. Yeah. And, you know, but I always like 500 Miles. Oh, God, I love that song. I remember that. I grew up with a sister who was crazy about Peter, Paul and Mary. And when they had a reformation, I don't know, was it in the 80s or the 90s or something like that? They came here and I took my sister to see them. So, yeah. So, I mean, I like them. And then there's some, you know, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. Joan Baez, not as much. Um, just her voice can get to me. <laughs> like that to me is the weak link in the, in the movie Silent Running. It's like, if I have to listen to her, you know, I just, honestly, I, I'm sorry. It just makes, it's a little droney to me. I like Joan Collins. Judy, Judy Collins. Judy yeah. Collins. Joan yeah. Collins. Joan Collins. <laughs> Joan Collins was responsible for some other stuff, but not folk music. You know? Look at that. <laughs> True. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard Pete Seeger and I've heard the Kingston Trio and things like that, because in Boston, the Kingston Trio, famous for Charlie on the MTA, it's a folk song they made up because they kept raising the prices of the rapid transit of the streetcars in Boston. Let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. He put 10 cents in his pocket his wife and family went to ride on the MTA. Well, did he ever return? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. The story is of this guy, Charlie, who bought a ticket, and while he was on the train, the price went up. And he didn't, his ticket didn't, wasn't for enough, so he couldn't get off. So he, he was day. just, he, to yeah. this day, he's riding the train. <laughs> it's funny. And musically, it's good. The Kingston Trio did some fun stuff. And then there's people like the Lettermen, who are not folk per se, but they are, they harmonize, and they're sort of a cappella. So they have that feeling about them. My dad was a big fan. And I think Brian Wilson was a big fan. He was crazy about the four freshmen, wasn't he? The four freshmen, too, yeah. Then Dad liked them, too. But yeah, he that kind of thing. They sort of had a folksy way about them in some ways. But yes, a fan. How about you? As I said, I grew up in a home where I had two sisters who were both crazy about folk music, but one sister was all about the American folk, and my other sister was all about British folk, and I guess more about, I don't know if you call it, yeah, maybe more folk rock is what she would play for me. So Steel I Span, Fairport Convention, who else? June Tabor, Pentangle, all that British adaptation of early folk done in a more contemporary style. So many really great people in that line. And the American folk, I mean, I don't think I got from my sister's the Laurel Canyon stuff of later on, but Odetta, we went to see Odetta when she came out here. My uh, sister who was a fan of the American folk music was crazy about her. As you said, Joan Baez, love Joan Baez. As I got older and I learnt about the whole thing about the Newport Folk Festival and so there were people who I was really getting into like Mississippi John Hurt who'd had this sort of, he was part of the whole folk revival. I mean, he'd been recording years before but like a lot of other musicians of 20 years before, a lot of white folk fans would come and bring these blues and folk musicians back to prominence and I think he was one of them. That's just what's coming to my head at the moment. But yes, I was very keen on a lot of that stuff. And it was interesting to sort of think about there was one thing about this film that 
I mean, the characters are all great and the groupings are all great, but it's interesting to note that because of that early 60s folk scene, which in this film, they're reassembling these bands who'd been big in the fictitious world of the 60s folk scene, is that none of them are political. You mentioned before Pete Seeger and really you know, the, the father of the folk revival in the 60s and mm-hmm. hugely political. And I think he said words to the effect of if it's not political, it's not worth a damn or something to that effect. And that's why he's so crazy about Dylan up until he went electric or once he started writing personal songs that were not finger pointing songs. These three groups, they certainly represent a side of what the folk music scene was at the time. But I just, as I said, found it very curious that there wasn't, apart from maybe one moment where I think it's the Harry Shearer character at the concert starts telling a story to fill in time about the Spanish Civil War. War. (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, Alan. Uh, In the late 1930s of the last century, Spain was racked by civil war. In the late summer, early fall of 1938, So the story goes behind this particular song. In the green hills just outside the city of Barth. Good night, everybody. Good night. night. Thank you very much. But there's really, none of these bands are political. I mean, they've all got songs that are fairly generic. And, and, you know, to come to your point, Sarah, about the songs being actually really good, I remember when the film came out, there was a lot of criticism saying, ah, these songs are shit, these songs are twee. But, I mean, first of all, I disagree, but I think that they are a true reflection from people who knew folk music what the sort of songs are, if they were going to write original songs in 2003 that were going to reflect what those sorts of groups would be doing in the 1960s, like that style or not, it seemed like an accurate reflection of what was going on at the time. The film that almost killed the podcast, Kerry, was Ishtar. Frank Santopadre recommended that we do it. And I was very surprised that Bernie really loved it like I did. And Tim absolutely hated it. And I thought, right, that's the end of the podcast. He's, he's going to walk off but paul williams had some level of genius in writing deliberately crappy songs but because he's a good songwriter he knows how to write songs that aren't so good as opposed to being someone who has no songwriting skill writing a bad song he's a good songwriter who knows how to craft a bad song but these songs in a mighty wind old joe's place kiss at the end of the rainbow ain't done no wandering these are lot, yeah. and, and actually just sort of like thinking about All You Need Is Cash, the Rattles mm-hmm, film, mm-hmm. the Eric Idle thing. All those songs are brilliant. And the, the thing that Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer and whoever wrote all of these songs for this film is I think the humor comes from what happens around the performances. We're not Alan Sherman. We're not writing Hello Mother, Hello Father. These are not meant to be funny songs in their own right. And right. one thing I didn't know until like a couple of weeks ago was that the whole thing about the Folksman was they were invented 20 years before this film. They started out like the Blues Brothers as a Saturday Night Live sketch. I was watching on YouTube the Saturday Night Live sketch with the Folksman and the conversation, and this is true of the film as well, there's nothing particularly funny about what they say, but you hear all this laughing and tittering from the audience as they're having their conversation. But I think it's less to do with what they're saying, but more the fact that they're seeing Harry Shearer and Michael McKean and Christopher Guest, all faces that they knew, pretending to be this folk group, and they're laughing at that. You know the train is going to crash into the mine. If you know what's going to happen, why sing sing the song? Well, well, you know, but that's like saying when you go and and see a movie like Moby Dick, you know he's big. I've been teaching for uh, 13 years at Pat's Walkmore. If none of these people were known, if they'd taken this bit of Saturday Night Live footage out of context and shown it by itself. If the audience didn't know who these people were, they just said, oh, yeah, that's some 1960s folky hippie sort of stuff. But it's only laughed at because of these are known faces. But yeah, look, I saw the film at the cinema. I didn't see Spinal Tap when it came out to the cinema, even though I could have. I don't know why I didn't. I think I eventually went to see that on VHS for the first time. But Waiting for Guffman... 
Best in Show and Mighty Wind saw them all at the cinema on original release. And I got to say, I I laughed my head off at this one. But I remember that the reviews at the time were saying, yeah, it's nice, but it's not as buster gut funny as the other two. It had been a long time since I watched the other two, but I watched Waiting for Guffman earlier on this week. I like it, but I think this is funnier. Um, Yeah. There's a question I want to put to the both of you. And I saw part of a video essay. YouTube is full of video essays about Mm -hmm. films and about records and the like. I think the video essay was called The Complicated Cruelty of christopher guest and he started out saying a lot of people say that this film is like comfort food and it's nice and it's sweet but often it seems like he's making fun of his characters he's taking the piss out of his characters no more so than in the coders of each film like each film they get to this point and then it's six months later and their lives are not on the high that they were in the penultimate scene of the film. So it says that the characters are often mocked. Do you think that these films, well, let's talk about, well, this film in particular, do you think it's cruel? No, I think they're mocked in terms of it's a mockumentary. Of course, they're going to be mocked a little bit. But I think that the whole six months later thing, like, yeah, you know, they've got uh, Mickey's playing like the sure flow convention. <laughs> The folksmen are playing at a casino and stuff like that. I don't think it's cruel. I think it's showing that all these bands have found their niche. And, like, you know, of course they're not going to be top 10, you know, Billboard, Hot 100, whatever. But they found their little area to play. And, you know, it's not Madison Square Garden, but they've each got their little niche. And, like, you know, Mark at the end is a trans woman, which is, um, it's handled a little bit. It's a, it's a nice ending because it's... It's just funny. It's like they're singing about penis clap. Like, (laughs) so I don't think it's cruel in that way. I think it's just realistic and also like kind of like a nice wrap up for the movie. I I would tend to agree. I mean, and as someone who has has been a musician, a working musician before. Now, they hadn't been playing music. So when they got together, reunited for this concert, presumably they had been doing something completely different. They had been, I don't know what, you know, teaching, working in a store. There's no mention that they were actually uh, working musicians during that hiatus, you know. So after this concert, they're still working musicians. So they stayed together and they're playing music. Well, if you're a musician, that's a victory. So you can call it cruel because he does, the characters sort of poke fun at themselves and each other, but they're working musicians and they're together. The folksmen are together. You, I, I would presume that the new Main Street singers are still playing at like Branson and the parks because they were playing at some amusement park in the beginning. You know, there's a roller coaster going behind them when they're, they're performing. So they're probably still playing at those same venues. So they're all working musicians. You know, you can say what you will, but they're playing together. So that's a happy thing to me. I like the, I mean, the characters are hysterical. And yeah, they're making fun of them in a way because they all have their little idiosyncrasies, you know, like the the, the lawyer, Bob Balaban, geez, he cracks me up. The You know, he's afraid that someone's going to trip on the plants and, you know. (laughs) This is very pokey. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, I guess that's making fun of of a guy who's afraid of lawsuits. But it's funny. It's a funny character. I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't think that that is being necessarily cruel. You know, I don't think that making fun, having a little bit of a laugh at at someone's expense. I mean, what's the old saying about comedy being time plus tragedy? or something like that. And there's no right. there's no tragedy in this film, but I did read something. Actually, no, maybe it was in this video essay where Christopher Guest, they quote him as saying that he's more interested in failure. If there'd been a story of these people who were, they're all wonderful,
wonderful. They're all nice and um, everyone achieves success and they carry on to success and they all make millions of dollars. There's nothing funny about that. There's nothing interesting about that. And you do tend to feel more sorry for the characters who they got their hearts set in that it's not necessarily pulling the rug, but as you both said, it's it's realistic. That concert, that was a one-off concert, which I should talk in a moment about what the concert was for, because I don't think the initial letterbox summary really sort of gives an idea what that was about. But this was a, a one-off concert and people are returning to their daily lives. I don't think anyone in the film is sort of thinking, we're going to be doing something incredibly special after this. This is the start of a new beginning. It's, it's just, you know, the music industry can be very, very cruel. And I don't think at the end of the film that any of us are saying, good, they got what they deserved. They were terrible. They don't deserve to be on top of it. And it, no. it's not like that. It's really not no. like that. Whenever I'm out of wandering, chasing a rainbow dream, I often stop and think about a place I've never seen. Where friendly folks can gather and raise the rafters high. With songs and tales of yesteryear until they say goodbye. Well, there's a puppy in the parlor and a skillet on the stove and a smelly old blanket that a Navajo wolf. This film, I was sort of thinking about this. It's sort of like maybe a variant on that old MGM trope of let's put on a show. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the whole let's put on a show. And really, even Christopher Guest did that two films before with Waiting for Guffman. That's another let's put on a show with a bit of a hard ending. Actually, even before the ending where they're waiting for, spoiler alert, (laughs) they're waiting for the theatre critic to come and send them to Broadway and he's not this guy who comes is not who they expect he is. Um, so the setup of the story is that Bob Balaban, who you may remember from Midnight Cowboy, so Bob Balaban plays as Jonathan Steinblum, the son of Irving Steinblum, a famous 60s folk music producer, and he decides to put on a show in New York City featuring three of his acts that his father produced 40 years ago in tribute. Jonathan has to skate through the minefields of fragile egos locating the people, the problems within his own family and his own misunderstanding of how putting a concert works. And really, a a comedy is not where everything goes right. It's where there's conflict and that's where this works extremely well. All all the rest of this film is just detail. I think this whole sweet versus cruel... I mean, I understand why they put that essay together. It's, uh, It's definitely a conversation worth having, but I think we're all in agreement that ultimately the film is sweet because it's about characters that we actually care for. I actually sort of wanted to compare it in a way. There was an Australian film, maybe you've seen it, Carrie, but it was one of the most beloved films here, ever made here, called The Castle. That's something you've got to see. The Castle was made by a, a troop a beloved troop here called working dog and ostensibly it's a story about a family that have their house located very near an airport you know for us as viewers we think that's a terrible place to have your house and they're told that they have to sell their house to the airport because they're going to make a new runway they fight tooth and nail because a man's home is his castle and the characters i think they've been accused of being simple-minded twits but to say that is really to not get the point these people we fall in love with these people because we identify with these people no one here likes being pushed around in their own home we have a lot of affection for them and i tend to think that if christopher guest was an australian he'd have made the castle i like to think at any rate he's seen the castle he loved the serenity of the place how's the serenity i think he also just loved the word so much serenity i sort of wanted to talk a little bit about a few scenes from the film and about the improv nature of this film i'm reading a book at the moment which is supposed to focus on the making of the Blues Brothers. And this will be for March's episode of See Here. We're going to be speaking to the author of this book. But it goes some way into talking about John Belushi's early life and Dan Aykroyd's early life. And there's a lot of mention made of Second City and John Belushi after he left Second City and went to make a production for National Lampoon, I think an early production called Lemmings. And he was paired up with Christopher Guest and Chevy Chase. 
I'm getting an idea about what Second City was through reading this book and a few things that I've heard, but do you know much about Second City? Can you illuminate this dumb Australian? Well, like SCTV, like I know a little about Second City. It's interesting because the people in a lot of the, the Canadians, was, uh, Eugene Levy's and Catherine O'Hara's Canadian, they were in a show called SCTV. And it was a Canadian show and it had also had Rick Moranis, John Candy, Joe Flaherty, and there's a woman and I can't think of her name. And she's in um she's in all those my big Greek wedding. She's she's in one of the all the Greek wedding movies. I can't Andrea something. <laughs> I can't think of her name. But yeah, they were a comedy troupe and they're hysterically funny. This is all before Saturday Night Live, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's not the same people. Now, this is SCTV was the Canadian thing. Yeah, and it's before. It's it's well, or coming at the same time. It's 70s. So it might be some of it at the same time, but then it was but it was a Canadian troupe. Now then there's Second City which was in Chicago. And that is the John Belushi and Bill Murray and all those guys that ended up being on Saturday Night Live, obviously other things that became that with National Lampoon. And these were sort of running parallel to one another. But it's interesting that SCTV, which was a TV show that was supposedly about a network, Andrea Martin, that's her name, it was about a network, SCTV, and all the fun. It's hysterical. It reminds you of, it sort of has a kids in the hall feel to it, if you know kids in the hall, but it's way beyond, before that, they make fun of these characters. Oh, Martin Short was in it, too. But it's just really some of the characters that he did later, you see the, uh, the beginnings of on this program. But you should, all these people, and they wrote music. They do uh, musical things and stuff like that. But it's hysterically funny. It's Second City in Chicago was the, a comedy troupe. But I think they're, they were they improv, too. And then Fred Willard was also in, I think he, he might have been in the, the Fire Sign. And he was in uh, the Groundlings, I think. Or the, I don't know which ones he was in. But he's been in a bunch of those too before them because he's of another generation he's a lot older than like christopher guest and those guys um and he was in a bunch of stuff before that because i know my dad said he was just really funny i think he might have been on soap too or a, a fernwood tonight he might i think he might have been on fernwood tonight sometimes like with martin mall but fred willard would show up oh, fred, was he the co-host he was the co-host he's been around for quite a long time in the comedy business i'm sorry i was rambling just a tiny bit there but um, that's what we do on this show yeah <laughs> but all of these people do have you know this kind of background I don't know specifically about John Michael Higgins, Jane Lynch. Parker Posey doesn't come from that kind of a background of the, the improv, I don't believe. Maybe theater, but then she was, and she's in a lot of indie films other than Christopher Guest, you know. Right, right. I've talked to her. She's lovely. She's a really nice person. And she talked about the Christopher Guest films. I watched her interviewed by John Waters. Really? <laughs> at, yeah, at the P-Town Film Festival. And uh, she, she was talking about the Christopher Guest films. And she said, you know, it's sort of a thing where he says, okay, we have to get from here to here, you know, in this scene go with it. It's very much sort of like by the end of the scene, we need to have established something or we need to be here or something. But he gives them kind of a like, this is kind of the character or this is what I'm thinking about. Why don't you think about it on your own and come up with a backstory and with, you know, all this stuff. So, you know, Parker Posey's like, I was on the streets and you see the picture of her <laughs> yeah. looking, looking like she's <laughs> been homeless or something and she doesn't look very happy, you know. And then you have the Jane Lynch backstory <laughs> well, okay, I want to bring up three key scenes about each of the bands and the John Michael Higgins, Jane Lynch scene was one of them. Well, gosh, you know, I've been playing the music of the Main Street Singers oh, my whole life. I mean, uh, from way back in Tampa. Uh, I've come to understand as an adult, uh, with the help of Lori, my beautiful wife, that um, there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Uh, my father used to lock me away in a room with nothing but the uh, Percy Faith recording of Bim Bam Bomb and uh, then send me to bed with nothing but dessert. Okay, so Jane Lynch and John Michael Higgins were known as the boners. 
I'm, just cue up a Beavis and Butthead laugh here. Um, so they're two of the modern members of the new Main Street Singers. And where I appreciate their brilliance is actually sort of like two different styles of improvisational work between what they do and with what the folksmen do or the actors who are playing as the folksmen do. But we'll come to them in a minute. But ostensibly, John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch are doing two monologues. And full credit to John Michael Higgins for the look on his face when Jane Lynch is telling yeah. her story. Um, Blink twice if you need help. <laughs> and before long, he tapped me to do some small roles in some of his short films <laughs> for more mature audiences. And uh, before long, I had landed, if you will, some leads. And uh, then I started to do some uh, cameos. Um, well, I was known for uh, doing a certain thing that many of the other girls wouldn't do. And of course, I loved to sing ever since I was a little girl. And um, I learned to play the ukulele in one of my last films, uh, Not So Tiny Tim. And uh, based on that, my world opened up because I was invited to join the reformed New Main Street Singers. And that's where I met my man. And uh, before long, I was the new Mrs. Boner. Her delivery. I didn't really know much about Jane Lynch. My daughter was crazy for years about Glee. Not a show I particularly cared for, but I knew that she was a big part. She was the villain of that show. So seeing her in this and in Best in Show, if I remember correctly, she is so skillful. Just so funny. But I just, it's not just a matter that she comes up with this dialogue on the spot, even if she has a rough idea in her head what it is that she's going to do. But that delivery, that really dry delivery that, uh, that I did a certain thing that the other girls would not do. And the look on her face, this is, I've got such respect, mad respect for that level of improvisatory skill. Well, Sarah mentioned the title of one of her films. Go ahead. Not so tiny, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, his, he does, he does look like he's, he's going to start blinking in Morse code. The fact that they're the witches. Yeah, they're oh. like color religion. <laughs> It's like, we're just members of the, you know, 49th parallel. You'd make that conclusion walking down the street. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Like, just the fact that they must have come up with that. The yeah. two of them got together, I would imagine, and said, okay, what's our backstory? And she left home and uh, a questionable past. And then... And his background of, uh, he was, I was, uh, like, musically tortured. I was put in a room and uh, made to listen to... To, uh, <laughs> to compare their level of improvisation, I mean, I think you probably hit the nail on the head where they probably worked out in advance, not necessarily word for word what they were going to say, but they said, right, okay, I'm going to be a porn actress and you're going to be complaining about your the abuse in your childhood and come up with something. So they knew that they were coming up with these two monologues as opposed to what happens with the folksmen where they're sitting around trading licks and just talking amongst themselves. I imagine that that's genuine. I don't know what I'm going to say until the camera's rolling. And there might be like 10 hours worth of conversational footage between yeah. the three of them. And they said, right, this is the bit that works. This two minutes worth. Sorry, I've, I just got a, a mental picture in my mind of, of us on stage in the show. And it just, we weren't wearing the old stuff, the old gear, the old... We're talking about the Dickies here? Ashery. Well, I think look. I'm on record as Mr. Anti-Dickies. You were Mr. Drop the Dickies. Oh, Drop yeah. the Dickies. I'm, I'm still saying It's just it. a very retro look. No, retro, I'm, I'm retro totally available for the discussion of it. It's just that it sounds like you're thinking that the image that we had was a retro image of something that wasn't retro no, if, because we did, we weren't retro because we were them. Right. It wasn't retro it, then, but now to try a retro thing, it might just look kind of to do sad. then. I mean, to do then now would be retro. To do then then yeah. was very nowtro. Well, my favorite part with the three of them was when they're in the car looking for the for where they're supposed to be going. And somebody says, do you have a map? And he says, I have it in the trunk. And he's like, were you planning to study it? <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it makes 
makes me laugh so hard because it sounds like something like our family yeah, would have that conversation. Because our family's very like... It sounds like something Grandpa would say. It does sound like something my dad would say. <laughs> he... I love how they're talking about their history, how they first got on whatever it was, the folk tone label or the folk something label. <laughs> and the, the first album didn't do so successfully, so they get downgraded to a lesser label. And these records, they didn't actually have the hole in the middle of the record. But if you made your own hole, you're going to have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And yet I wonder, that's probably based on fact. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure all the, uh, yeah. these, uh, nowadays, every label is an independent label, apart from whatever universal or, you know, one or two big labels left. But everything is done independently and they've learnt on the mistakes of, of others. But I would not be surprised if... <laughs> A label is, is doing things on the cheap and they think, oh, we can't afford to put the hole in a record. <laughs> that was funny. Well, what did he say? It will wobble wildly. It was like teetering. Teetering wildly on the, on the photograph. <laughs> But and then things like the backstory of Mitch and Mickey and like after, you know, because they're a sweetheart, they met and they're sweethearts and they and then they become very big, very popular. And then they break up the album covers of Eugene Levy's solo album covers. <laughs> Calling it quits. He's in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> And then in the straitjacket, may she rot in hell. (laughs) It's so clever. It's so clever. Those characters, for those of you who haven't seen the film, and I'd like to think that most of you listening to this have seen the film, so you know what the hell we're actually talking about. But Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, who seem to have been acting together forever and know each other's beats are so brilliant. They've been as you said a folk trio who were romantically entangled and their big song was kiss at the end of the rainbow which really i could imagine have having been a real song but the novelty was that they would be singing this song on television him playing the guitar her playing the zither and then it gets to a point where they stop the music and they give each other a kiss and everyone loves that they're not even listening to the music anymore it's all about the kiss mm-hmm Oh, when the veil of dreams has lifted And the fairy tales have all been told There's a kiss at the end of the rainbow More precious than a pot of gold And then they have the breakup. So in the film, I sort of find myself thinking they're the emotional heart of the film. And every time that they're moving towards the main street singers or the folksmen, I mean, I'm enjoying that, but I think, no, quick, get back to Mitch and Mickey. I want to know what happens. What happened? That's where the tension is. Will they get back together? Will they not get back together? When I watched it this week or the week before, it was the first time since I'd seen the film in the cinema. I didn't remember how that was going to turn out. But maybe we won't spoil it here. Oh, no, maybe we will. I don't care. Uh, but, uh, but yes, their moments are really full of pathos. So to say that Christopher Guest is unnecessarily cruel or making fun of his characters don't really get the Mitch and Mickey thing. Although, I mean, okay, fair enough that Mitch is speaking in a slightly halted tone in a way that looks like his brains are fried. Well, I'm feeling very relaxed, very confident, very focused. Uh, You know, 35 years ago, preparing for a concert uh, meant playing Find the Cobra with a hotel chambermaid. Uh, But tonight I I feel good. I feel excited. I feel ready for whatever the experience is that we will take with us after the show. And I'm sure that there were a lot of musicians of the period. Rocky Erickson, people like that. Who knows? Maybe that's how they spoke because they were, you know, Mitch is not a a character that that Christopher Guest probably just said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had him talking like this? These are based on real people. One of the things that I found out this week, uh, I mean, it's no surprise that these gents were all 
you know, genuine folk musicians at one stage, but you just sort of presume, oh, they were real metal musicians uh, because of what you see in Spinal Tap. But I found out that Christopher Guest, he'd started out as a folk, he'd learnt the mandolin, and he'd actually played with Arlo Guthrie. So your bona fides don't get much better than that. So yeah, he he knows what he's talking about in this film. He's not making fun of folk music. He's celebrating it. But these characters, we're fascinated by failure. We're fascinated. And and comedy is about conflict. Any, really, any decent film is about conflict. And that's what happens with these characters. And one thing that I guess we sort of haven't mentioned here yet, though, is the egotism that goes between the ensembles. I mean, I guess no one's really competing with Mitch and Mickey. They, the, the other two ensembles, they care for them. But there's a snobbishness of the folksmen against the new Main Street singers. I mean, what is it that they... I can't remember what they call them. Toothpaste commercials. Toothpaste commercials. Uh, I, I think nothing gets their goat up quite as much as the fact that the new Main Street singers are covering one of their songs. Competition is not limited to rock and roll ensembles. It right. goes to show... That is a really interesting point that they do that. Like, it does come off as really snipey that they would play. This, <laughs> the, the folksman had a couple of hits, that's one of them, and they're going to play it. Like, it's that's it still seems sort of crazy that they would do that. My mother was the cold north wind. My daddy was the son of a railroad man from west of hell, where the trains don't even run. Never heard the whistle of a lonesome freight Or the singing of his driving a wheel we need to talk about the Ed Bakley character. Oh. The Ed Bakley character absolutely cracks me up. Lars Olfen. Who, Lars knows, who Olfen. knows more Yiddish than... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> and it's a mitzvah. The nachas that I'm feeling right now, because your dad was like mishbucha to me. When I heard I got these tickets to the folksmen, I let out a geshrai, and I'm running with my friend, running around like a vildachaya, right into the theater in the front row. So we've got the Spilkas because we're sitting right there, and it's a mitzvah, what your dad did, and I want to try to give that back to you. A kinahor, I say, and God bless him. I just wish I'd shown this film to my dad. He loved that sort of thing. He loved watching Hollywood movies where they threw in Yiddish words. He just adored that. I'm sorry I never showed him this film. The way he, and I'm smoking, and I'm, you know, and he's going through the hole, and it's... I, I had a hit in Sweden. You may have heard of it, like, so da-da-da, or uh, how, hey, how's it hanging, Grandma? <laughs> you got the block warmer for the Volvo, but, you know, I just think the backstories of these characters are fascinating. One of the things that I always feel at the end of any Christopher Guest film, any of them, even the lesser ones where I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, like for your consideration, I want to know more about these people. Like there is usually at least one or two characters that I'm like, oh, I wish I want to have a whole movie with that person. And that Lars Olfen guy, (laughs) he just cracked me up. You know, and he's the head of the PBS. PBN. PBN, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, when they're saying, well, our viewers are skewing a little younger. Well, if we can get a dozen or so (laughs) people that are under 40, we're happy, you know. (laughs) So is that the, the PBS? demographic is generally yes. tends to be older, older. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, I was going to say that the actor who I would have liked to have seen more of, and I did see him in a scene that was cut out, like the DVD has a whole bunch of really great deleted scenes, but is Paul Dooley, who was only, I think, original member of the Main Street Folk Singers. Um, mm-hmm. all, all the rest are people who've joined the group over the years, but he's like the only one still left from the 60s. And Paul Dooley... I've seen him in a few films, but really the film I still love and treasure him from is Breaking Away. Yes. Uh, Yes. I guess that film sort of qualifies as a music film, doesn't it? Maybe not. Anyway, no, I absolutely adore that film. And I really, really love Paul Dooley as an actor. And I would have liked to have seen him more than just that one introductory scene where he talks about the early days of... um... Ramblin' Sandy Pitnick. (laughs) We were lucky enough to be joined by uh, one of the greatest talents of our generation, any generation, as a matter of fact, Ramblin' Sandy Pitnick. The, the picture of him, too, he's like... <laughs> <laughs> I wish the listeners could see that. There, there was a mother and daughter moment where they both posed like Ramblin' Sandy Picnic. <laughs> 
I don't think we can um, sign off on this program without talking for a couple of minutes. You've already gone and mentioned him by name, Kerry, I think, about Fred Willard. He's, to me, he's that guy. You know, you see him in a film and I I know that guy, uh, Fred Willard. I, it took years before I remembered him by name. But I think the first time that I saw him was in the Bruce Beresford film, Roxanne. He didn't have a particularly hysterical role in that. But he had that face that yeah. I really, really liked. And then seeing him you know, in these Christopher Guest films, I thought, ah, oh, it's a guy from Roxanne. But I remember him in Spinal Tap. He's always playing that guy... He's the know-it-all buffoon. In Spinal Tap, he's the lieutenant at an Air Force base that hires the band to play at their dance and is clueless about the sort of music that they do. But his scene is absolutely hysterical as he's saying to the band, I better watch it. People might confuse me that I'm with the band because my hair is nearly as long as yours. And of yeah, course, yeah. It, of course <laughs> it's not. Very, very funny. In Waiting for Guffman, he plays that egocentric travel agent who's never left town and he sees the dentist characters played by Eugene Levy as an amateur and feels that his wife played by Catherine O'Hara needs extensive notes after every rehearsal. He's just this <laughs> egocentric guy who is not at all aware of his own shortcomings but in a mighty wind he's the manager of the new main street singers and when he gives that interview to the camera where he's talking proudly about his own past as an actor on the tv show what happened uh, <laughs> let's start right out hey what happened as you know back in 1970 i start on a series called what happened and every time something would go wrong i would look at the camera and say hey what happened we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. I got a real red wagon. And uh, I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. He's most proud of being part of a TV program that had catchphrases like, I can't do my work. And I don't think so. <laughs> I showed this uh, movie to my friends and we we kept quoting his lines to each other like, oh, I got a real red wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the question is, Sarah, did you all have a round table sing song chorus of put him in the cell with a long hose, put him in the cell with long hose? <laughs> oh, that's just cringeworthy. But that's one thing that the film needed was the cringeworthy character. And that's what Fred Willard absolutely absolutely brought to it you know, the, the runaway character just when you're sort of laughing at what everyone else is doing and he says hold my beer i'm gonna own this film for the next three minutes <laughs> yeah he's very very funny every time he says something you see like jane lynch roll her eyes you know <laughs> <laughs> but you know when he's talking later when they're singing the song the new main street singers are singing the song about sailing sail away sail away and he breaks stops in the middle and he says you know there was that book uh, about a guy and his name was Moby Dick <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he totally has it you know back ass words but yeah he was he was uh, Martin Mull's partner on Fernwood Tonight you've seen that right I have not no oh my god it's really funny because soap I don't know if he was on soap. Well, not well. There's soap and there's Mary Hartman. I saw soap as a kid. Okay, Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman was was really good, but not necessarily like a lot of punchlines, but just like really weird situations, stuff like that. And it was like you know a, a, a take on a a soap opera kind of a thing, but very funny. And then Fernwood Tonight spun off from that. And Martin Mull is the host of a TV show of a like a Johnny Carson kind of guy, but very, very local. And uh, his partner is Fred Willard, his sidekick, his Ed McMahon is Fred Willard. And Fred Willard is very slow, like mentally. <laughs> on this show. So like, you know, Martin Mull will say something and he'll be like, well, yeah, and then there's a horse or so, you know, some silly thing. And, and Martin Mull's just like, no, you know, <laughs> just the whole time. He just always says the wrong thing. It's very funny, but it's incredibly local and like really cheesy. And the set is really cheesy and the outfits and when they have an act on, the act is terrible and it's very funny. It was April 27th in the year of 91, about a mile below the surface and the warm Kentucky sun. 
The late shift was ending and the early shift was late And the foreman ate his dinner from a dirty tin plate Blood on the tracks, blood in the mine Brothers and sisters, what a terrible time There's really not much more, I mean, apart from talking about the overall historical context. I mean, I, I think that it being made when it was was probably appropriate because we've seen in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years when there's always been some level of nostalgia within entertainment and bands reforming and getting back together for one purpose or another. But, you know, 2003 was just enough time away from the 60s to have these ensembles being reformed to do something. I mean, I don't think a film could be made in 2023 about bands getting together this year who were folkies in the 60s and might be really well past it but that was just at the right time I think and uh, it, it, I can't remember who I was talking about this with but it seems like every decade seems to be like 20 or 30 years ahead of its nostalgia boom so like the 70s we were fascinated with 50s culture and in the 80s with all these films and TV series that were focused on the aftermath of the Vietnam War uh, so and that fed into the music so we were listening to a lot of you know The Doors and Jimi Hendrix in the 80s more so than they probably did in the 60s and the 90s was all about 70s nostalgia so it seems like it was a 20-year gap you know, by the time you get to 2003 well it's a 40-year gap but it's still it's still right we've always had this nostalgia no, it's appropriate and you can see although yeah otherwise if they, if they had it if they did it now the people would be they would have to be quite a bit older yeah i don't know that it would have the same yeah it'd be interesting like if in 2023 we were making a film about some element of music nostalgia where would we go where would we do it is there still that level of nostalgia about the 90s i don't know that there's is there any level of nostalgia about the music from the 21st century i don't know well i mean the way that i think you could do it was by doing a period piece where if you're going to be nostalgic about the 50s you set the movie in the 70s or something. Sure, sure. I mean, and then you could do it. It's like when the folks when I were talking about, like, to do then, now is retro, but to do then, then is now-tro. <laughs> I mean, that effectively, that line is really the whole umbrella for the film, if you will. It says everything about nostalgia. What was then was the new thing, and what is now is nostalgia. And we... Look, I mean, I went to see Paul McCartney a couple of months ago and that was as much about, I don't know if it's it's false nostalgia because I wasn't really, I mean, I was alive when the Beatles were, were around, but I was too much of a baby. So, but it's, there's a level of nostalgia there and I'm still listening to new music, but we're all guilty of some level of nostalgia, be it because we want to be reminded about our childhood or we want to be reminded about a better time in our lives. But the musicians themselves are indulging in nostalgia because, well, like in the case of Mickey, what's she doing? She's married to a guy who sells, was it not bedpans? Yeah, yeah. The chance for even a few minutes to relive a time in her life that she really enjoyed and forget where it ended is exciting for her. And and that's probably the truth for any musician that is saying, right, we're going to do our classic album of uh, 40 years ago from start to finish in concert. And none of the stuff that we've done over the last 40 years, yeah, sure, we've been creative, but you don't want to hear that. We don't want to play it. We want to be reminded of when we were successful and you loved us. So, <laughs> so the film is, it's busted gut funny, but it's also very clever in that regard. And it says something yeah. about our love of nostalgia. Any final thoughts? I like the way that they wrapped up Mitch's character. Uh, well, he leaves the concert to go get Mickey a rose. And then at the end, he says, like, I will always think of her fondly every time I see a rose. I just thought that was so cute. And it's a good closing of their story. Because obviously they don't, like, end up together. She goes back to, to Crab Town. <laughs> <laughs> It was just like a nice, like, oh, like they think of each other fondly type of, of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's pleasant. It's a pleasant ending since they broke up the first time, you know, and it was pretty nasty, I guess. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Film. So it's nice that they can get back together after many years and part as friends. That's very pleasant. Yes. And she can sing at these uh, industry shows. Yeah. 
a trade show about catheters and yeah. bladder incontinent issue things and ooh. <laughs> It's rough. It's rough. It's rough. We can all aspire to that. Performing at those shows, not having a catheter. Yeah, no. No. Well, okay, so in case you hadn't got the impression, we all really, really love this film. So, yeah, if you haven't seen A Mighty Wind in a while or if you've never seen it, Thanks for listening to the program. We really appreciate that you would take our word before seeing the film, but go back and watch the film. It's a hell of a lot of fun. And and it's got some interesting things to say as well. Christopher Guest is an insanely talented creative, but really all these people are. These are ensemble pieces and it lives and dies by what they do. But I, I didn't take note of who the editor was, but whoever was the editor would have been brilliant because to be able to make a mock documentary, you're effectively making a real documentary except that you know in advance where it's headed towards it's not a obviously not a documentary of real life but it's supposed to look like that i'm stating the flame and obvious here but you know i imagine that they had to film a hundred hours to get it down to an hour and a half uh, mm-hmm. and, and some of the dialogue was not going to make the cut but effectively the interesting things the fun things is how is what dictates how the film ends up and christopher guest could have come up with a completely second a second or third film using different scenes and maybe taking the story in a very different direction but yeah i'm very very fond of this i love that he's basically sort of taken this art form made something very very special about it that concludes our conversation about a mighty wind we lasted the whole show without making any flatulence jokes because i'm (laughs) you know a mighty wind and i'm sure there's something in that in that song about a mighty wind blowing and it's not just about the winds of change but that was scorpions wasn't it um (laughs) anyway thank you very much sarah for being a part of this and being so excited to to come and join us and do this of course thank you for having me it's always good to talk about a movie that we all like so i gather the impression that you've watched a lot with your mum. Mm-hmm. yes very much <laughs> before we sign out let's just have a quick discussion about what is happening next month so as we record this, it's, well, here in Australia anyway, because I know I'm, I'm 16 hours ahead of you. It's the 24th of December. I know it's not like you two have nothing to do to prepare for, for Christmas, so I'm all the more grateful. But this show will have been put out before the end of 2023. So our next show will be in January of 2024, and See Here will be 10 years old in January of 2024. I would have liked to have been able to assemble anyone who'd been on the show before as a co-host. I might still be able to do that, but let's. it looks like at the moment we're just going to do, inverted commas, just do a regular show, but we'll find some way to commemorate, celebrate the fact that we've reached 10 years because trying to keep a podcast on there for 10 years when a lot really the podcast graveyard is full of shows that lasted no longer than six to 12 months so we've done not too bad lasting this long so uh what we're going to do next month we're going to do an interview fingers crossed we're going to be speaking and it's going to sort of be a further down the line film from your last pick Kerry for October you picked that we discussed the Wrecking Crew documentary as uh, directed by Denny Tedesco and he's just released his follow-up film which is also about studio musicians in Los Angeles the film is called The Immediate Family and it's following up with session musicians of the 70s and the musicians who they performed for so people like uh, Waddy Wachtel Leland Sklar who's got the most impressive beard I've ever seen and uh, they're speaking with the musicians who they worked for like James Taylor and Carol King and Linda Ronstadt and you know Lee Sklar played for Phil Collins in the 80s so this will be a fascinating film but we've had the privilege of being able to get Denny Tedesco himself to come on the show I put out the word at uh, the Pantheon Network communication channels and said hey does anyone happen to have contact for Denny Tedesco and within about 60 seconds an email had been sent to Denny hey Denny this fella in Australia has a show about movie music related movies 
go on his show. So thank you, Pantheon, for looking after us. Thank you for allowing us to play in your sandbox. So, yes, we have uh, Denny Tedesco. And no doubt we'll be talking a little bit about the Wrecking Crew as well because if he's coming on the show, why wouldn't we? We'd have to have him yeah. and talk about that. So, but, yeah, the focus will be the immediate family, his new film. Very, very excited to watch that. Uh, so that will be our 10th anniversary show in January of 2024. We started this podcast back in January of 2014. Our very first film was Hated, the Gigi Allen story. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're going from Gigi Allen to Leland Sklar. That's a big step, but we are diverse. We're nothing if not diverse. Looking forward to that. So until January of 2024, please look after each other. Enjoy Christmas. Enjoy the new year. Be safe. All the best. Cheers. Across the sea, it's blowing peace and freedom. It's blowing equality. When the blind man sees the picture, when the deaf man hears the word, when the fisherman stops fishing, when the hunter spares the herd, we'll still hear the wondrous story of a world where people care. The story of this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, the mighty winds are blowing, it's picking up the sand. It's blowing out a message to every woman's calendar. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.